everybody, and welcome back to I Just Want to Talk About the Bible. In case you missed the introductory episode, my name is Christian Keeter, and I'm really excited to be here with you again today. So I really wrestled through um, what I wanted to talk about in this first episode, because in truth, it's not trying to come up with content, it's just knowing how to organize it, because like I mentioned in the introduction, so much of what I'm going to be sharing with you guys is what the Lord has shown to me. And I have a journal in particular that I have used strictly for recording what God has uh, been showing me. And, and I've been writing stuff down in that for about three months now, and it's just about full. But I believe that I know um, where we need to start, especially given this, the state of the world right now. So it is June 30th. 2020 currently. So we are actually still in the midst of this coronavirus pandemic, the COVID-19 crisis, and it has affected all of our lives in many, many different ways. I personally know people who have contracted it and come out the other side, um, fully recovered, praise the Lord. Um, There are people who have lost jobs uh, and all sorts of things. I, I know them personally as well. And, but, but everybody has been affected on some level by this. And so I'm hoping, I'm hoping that today our conversation will provide a, a slightly different perspective, some hope, um, some encouragement, and uh, that you walk away feeling empowered. So let's get into it. A little while ago, when I first wrote down what I'm going to be sharing with you guys today, I, uh, I felt that I had a whole bunch of... I felt like I was really emotionally tense, I guess you could say. I felt like a balloon that was overinflated, and I wasn't necessarily sure why. I could look at a couple things here and there. Um, so I sat down, and I just started working through this with the Lord, praying through it, journaling, and all of that. And in the course of that, I realized that at the time, around the eight months leading up to that point, had been very, very difficult. I mean, there's no need to go into detail, um, but they had just been very difficult months. Uh, There had been pain, uncertainty, and all sorts of things like that. And I don't think I had actually dealt with the emotion that came with all these things. I think I just allowed time to sweep it under the rug, as we do. And so I, I realized that these things were still affecting me. And I needed to sit through or sit down and journal through and pray through these things. And in that process, the Lord took me to James 1. James 1, to a very popular passage, a very famous passage that I hope will come alive to you in a new way today. So let's get into it. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open it to James 1. If you're like me, you're probably not like sitting at a desk right now. You're either in the yard, at the gym, or driving. And if you're doing any of those things, especially driving, you can just listen. You don't have to open your Bible. Uh, I'll be reading all of this stuff anyways. So let me read the passages in view, and then we'll talk through it. James 1, 2 through 4 says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Then down in verse 12, James 1, 12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So these, especially verses 2 through 4, are very popular passages. I think I probably memorized them very, very early on in my walk with the Lord. 
And I think that they work our way into conversations pretty frequently. But the Lord took me back here, and he made this word alive to me in a new, fresh way and taught me all about it. So let me share that stuff with you. I'll say that some of this might get a little technical because we're going to be getting into Greek words, and uh, I will include in the show notes of this episode the... um, the Strong's Concordance Greek numbers so that you can go back and check. Like if you want to go to blueletterbible.org or any other resource that you use, that you can go and look up these things yourself as well and uh, and do some research. But uh, I'll just I'll include those in the show notes. So let's work through the passage, pausing along the way, and then draw some conclusions. So the first verse, verse 2, says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Something at the outset. It doesn't establish the origin of the trial. It merely acknowledges the existence of it. Notice James doesn't say, uh, count it all joy when you meet a specific trial. Um, You know, other places in the Bible say that, like blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness sake. That's a very specific trial. I'm being persecuted for following Jesus. However, James here is speaking very broadly. He says, when you meet trials of various kinds. So in that little phrase, he does two things. First, he says, regardless of the origin, what I'm about to say applies to you. Regardless of the origin of the trial, whether it's self-inflicted, whether it's the divine discipline of the Lord, whether it is uh, just the result of living in a fallen world, any of these things, what I'm about to say applies to you. And then he says, um, you know, various kinds, various kinds, which even augments that first point more, meaning, listen, Various kinds, not of a specific kind. When you meet it for whatever reason, whatever it is, listen. And so we respond, okay, James, we're listening. Tell us. So then he goes on. He says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So that word testing, the testing of your faith, Very important word. I'm actually going to come back to that one in a minute after we look at the rest of the words here because that one word, testing, has such a powerful, powerful image in it. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So let's keep going through the passage. The next word, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfast is the Greek word hupomeno. It is a compound word. Hupo means under or beneath, kind of like... It's where we get our English prefix hypo, H-Y-P-O. So uh, hypoglycemia, hypothermia, like these, we have compound words that still maintain this Greek prefix, hypo, hupo. So hupo means under. Now minnow is a cool word. Minnow means to remain. Many of you are no doubt familiar with Jesus' famous vine and branches passage. I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him shall bear much fruit. We know John 15 That word abide, whoever abides in me and I in him, is the word minnow. So this is a compound word, hupo minnow, which means to remain under. Minnow means to abide or remain, and hupo means under. So it carries a very, very cool picture, to remain under. Uh, The idea is not to flee. It is not to give up. It is to refuse to, to yield, to, to be strong, to be steadfast. A really, really cool use of this word, actually, is um, it, had a, it had a military application. It was a term that was used if, say, there was a, a 
a, a battalion of soldiers or, or something like that. And what they did is they captured some plot of land. They had advanced. They had uh, gotten some some area. The idea of Hupomino is that they are not losing that territory. They're not losing it. They're going to do everything they can to remain steadfast, to remain under. They're going to stay there. They're not going to yield it. And that's the picture. It pictures bravery and calmness. Steadfastness is no matter what's happening, I can calmly and bravely endure and I will not yield. I will not yield to this. And we'll see how we can have that steadfastness in a minute. So that's the word steadfast, hupomino. Moving on, we see the full effect, it says, let steadfastness have its full effect. The end to which steadfastness is the means is says that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, when we hear the word perfect, certain things come to our mind, which include things like sinless perfection, which, of course, there is application of that here. I mean, as we you know, remain steadfast. The idea is that we're remaining steadfast under the authority of God and that he is sanctifying us, purifying us, moving us forward. But the word perfect is actually the word teleos. And again, I'll put all the Strong's numbers in the footnotes, but it means to be fully equipped. The word is also translated as mature. Teleos, someplace translated as perfect, other places translated as mature. And it is the idea of being fully grown. It is the idea of being full grown. It is the opposite of being a child. It's you're, you're fully grown, you're fully equipped, you're ready for a task. So that's what perfect means. Now it says perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So complete um, means complete. <laughs> uh, it means complete in all of its parts. It means that nothing is missing. It's whole, without defects, without blemish. It's, it's consummate. It's, it is idea of, of total completion. It's almost like the, um, the Old Testament word shalom, which, yeah, it means peace. But more than just our word peace, it, it, shalom means like wholeness. You're whole. And so that's what this word perfect and complete means. And then the little tiny clause at the very end reiterates this where James says lacking in nothing. So being perfect and complete means you're lacking in nothing. So let's, let's step back and look at these verses one more time and because we just got really kind of technical and it can be easy to lose traction when we get technical. So let's come back and look at this just with these pictures in our mind. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for whatever reason, wherever they're coming from, whatever trial, for we know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It produces this quality in you where you are able to calmly and bravely remain under trial, difficulty, adversity, and say, I will not yield this territory. I will not falter. I will not give up. I will not let go. So it produces steadfastness, hupomino. And steadfastness leads to being fully grown. It leads to being fully equipped. It leads to being complete. It leads to you lacking in nothing. Okay? It's this idea of I'm growing up. I am being matured. I am moving from spiritual infancy through spiritual toddlerhood, spiritual childhood, spiritual adolescence. And let's rush right through that and move on to spiritual adulthood, right? And so it's like this is a systematic, it is a systematic process of me being grown. And what is implied here? 
what is implied here is that God is at work. How could we count it all joy if we don't believe that God is, is not at work? Romans 8, 28 and 29 says, uh, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he may be the firstborn among many brothers. What is that saying? What that is saying in simple terms is God will use everything to make us look more like Jesus. God will use everything to make us look more like Jesus. Okay, so returning to the word testing, I said we're going to come back to that um, and this is so nice, actually. I, this is, you know, like I said, I don't have much experience with the podcast. This is my second episode, but you guys can like pause and rewind and all that stuff. So I can just, I can just roll. This is fun. So returning to the word testing. Testing is this. Testing is the Greek word dokimion. Dokimion. And it is an interesting word. It also appears in 1 Peter uh, one, six, and seven, which I'm going to read right now because it's painting a picture. It's painting a very, very helpful picture for us. It says in first Peter one, six or seven, in this you rejoice though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, Peter's actually also talking about various trials. There's that phrase, various trials. But then he connects this word tested to the purification of gold. Did you, did you see that? It says, uh, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, again, faith is the thing being tested both here and also in the James passage, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. And then he keeps going. And so this word tested is connected to metal being purified by fire. This is a very, very helpful image. Let me give you one more verse really quickly that also reflects this. In the Old Testament, uh, well, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and also some Aramaic. However, there was there is a very, very, very old translation of the Old Testament of the Hebrew Bible called the Septuagint. The Septuagint was the Greek Bible translated into Greek. I'm sorry, the, the Hebrew Bible translated into Greek. And the New Testament writers had access to this. Um, so this is a very, very, very old document. Um, so in Proverbs 27, it says this, Proverbs 27, 21, the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold and a man is tested by his praise. So we see in that passage, a crucible and a furnace are both uh, things that are used to purify precious metals such as gold and silver, like this passage says. And it says a man is tested by his praise. The Greek translation of the Old Testament puts dokimion right there for tested. So, so what's the point of all this? What's the significance of, of metal here? Well, it, it paints a really encouraging, encouraging picture. What is, what, is it, what is it saying? Well, in using a word that also is used of the purification of metal, James paints this picture. Let's pretend for a minute that we are some, a, a rock, like a rock in the ground, <laughs> a rock in the ground that has a vein of some metal running through it. We know that for that metal to be accessed, that rock needs to be mined up 
and it needs to go through the process of purification. It has to be thrown into a furnace. It has to go through this, this, this very intense process, doesn't it? So the rock doesn't understand what's happening to it, if it could understand. It, it wouldn't understand what was happening to it when it was removed from the, the earth. The rock wouldn't understand what was happening to it when it was cast into the fire and left there, and parts of it literally began to melt away. The rock wouldn't understand what happens when it is in this molten state and part of it has been scraped away. What's happening to it when it's poured into a mold and forced into a shape that it doesn't naturally have? The rock doesn't understand What's happening to it whenever, once it starts to cool, somebody takes it out of that mold and starts hitting it over and over and over again with a hammer and reinserting it into the fire, then hitting it over and over again. The rock doesn't understand that. The rock is probably very confused and it does not sound like a pleasant experience. But this is what you and I know. This is what the blacksmith knows. That rock, that rock has in it potential. Okay, and the blacksmith is taking what is just potential and making it actual. You see, what happens when we purify a metal? That metal becomes useful. In the ground, it's just a rock. But whenever it's taken and put through the furnace and put into a mold and hammered, it can be made into a bowl, it can be made into a sword, it can be made into all sorts of things. And it can be made really useful to do things it never could have done if it were left alone. And that rock has one job. Let the blacksmith do his job. Now, I realize that this illustration is a little silly because rocks don't think and they couldn't do otherwise. But you see my point. Our only job is to let the great blacksmith, the Lord God Almighty, do his work in us. We have two responsibilities in this process. The singular responsibility is not to interfere with the Lord. And then that manifests itself in two ways. In two ways. The first way is back in verse 2, where it says, Count it all joy. Count it all joy. How do we count it all joy? When it is indeed painful. We don't like being put into, you know, passing through the fire. We don't like being hammered into a different shape. Even though we are being made useful, we are being equipped. So how do we count it all joy? How do we actually do this? Well, it's kind of like where Paul says, give thanks in all circumstances in 1 Thessalonians 5.18. He doesn't say give thanks for all circumstances. We're not supposed to like pretend like we enjoy the painful process. No, that's not what he's saying at all. He says, give thanks in all circumstances. Count it all joy. So how do we count it all joy? We count it all joy by seeing what the end result of the trial will be. We count it all joy by saying, you know, I'm not enjoying this process, but God has not forgotten me. He has not forgotten me. This is going to be used to make me perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I am going to be more useful, a tool in the hand of the Lord as a result of this. He is taking something that is just potential in me and making it actual. He's teaching me how to rely more on his spirit. He's teaching me. And that is something worth celebrating. That aspect of it. There is a sequence here. And if we can keep this sequence in mind, it'll help us to count it all joy. The sequence in James 1, 2 through 4 is trials, 
lead to testing, testing leads to steadfastness, and steadfastness leads to being made perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, we don't really, uh, we, we rarely see beyond the trials. We don't get past step one normally. We get stuck on step one trials, which is, I really don't like this circumstance. How do I get out of it? How do I get out of it? But a lot of times, it's just, I just need to remain steadfast. I just need to remain steadfast. So the first thing that we are called to do is to count it all joy. To count it all joy. Fun thing about the word count as well. The word count means to lead. It means to lead as in ruling or having authority over. It means to consider, to deem, to account, or think. That first definition is particularly interesting for me because the idea of ruling or authority paints the picture of telling something what to do and where to go. So the idea is this. We don't feel. Our emotions do not feel like counting it all joy, but we rule over that and say, no, I will. I will count it all joy. I will rejoice in the Lord. I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to give thanks in all circumstances because I know that this is not going to be wasted. I know that this is not going to be wasted. The Lord is going to use this. The Lord is going to use this. Therefore, I count it all joy. We can't wait for our emotions to agree. We must rule over them. We must rule over them. Side note about emotions. We make two mistakes with them. Uh, We either... Uh, let our emotions drive the car or we lock them in the trunk of the car. <laughs> we either give them total control or no say. But the emotion, our emotions should be in the passenger seat of the car where we're still driving and in control, but we're willing to listen to them, but they don't make the final say. It has been well said that emotions make great servants but horrible masters. So we count it all joy. That's our first responsibility. Our second responsibility we go down to verse 12, it says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. So that is clearly the ball is in our court. We are to remain steadfast. We count it all joy, and then we remain steadfast. I have already, you know, talked about this. Uh, it is just bravely, calmly enduring. Um, it, it is, it, it is like the picture I said of the military who will refuse to give up a, a plot of land that they have gained. Uh, it is the picture of somebody who is steadfastly and unflinchingly bearing a very heavy load. It's that quality of character that doesn't allow us to surrender to circumstances or to succumb to trial. It's constancy. It's endurance. It has a forward outlook. It doesn't just look at the trial, but it looks forward. It has the ability to focus what's beyond the current pressures. And it, it's just, it is, a, it, is, it is a most admirable trait. We admire it in others, but don't want it developed in ourselves. As with so many things. As with so many things. So, our two responsibilities are to count it all joy and to remain steadfast. To remain steadfast. And, you know, like, like the text says, it says back in verse 3, that, uh, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and steadfastness has this result. We must recall this. We must recall the, where the trial will lead, the end result. Um, one more word uh, that I would like to look at from down in verse 12. And then we're going to draw some, some practical conclusions here. It's the word blessed. 
Blessed. Uh, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, and so on. And so the word blessed is makarios. Makarios. It is the same word that is used in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, and so on and so forth. It's, it's blessed. Now, blessed is a word that we do not use that frequently now, unless somebody sneezes. You know, bless you, God bless you. Um, it, it's just it's just not a word that we really use or even really understand. The word means happy, but not happy in our sense of happy. Our definition of happy simply means uh, I feel a good emotion because all my circumstances are going well right now. But I mean, it's obvious from this entire conversation that this is talking about a type of happiness that can't be touched by trial. Or by circumstances. The very context of all of this is trial. So it can't mean pleasant circumstances. That would be illogical. So what does makarios mean? Well, somebody put it to me in a really, really helpful way that I'm going to quote him almost directly here. But makarios describes the person who is free from daily cares and worries. And this confidence comes just because that person is fully aware that they are in the kingdom of God, that they are under God's umbrella, under his protection, that his hand is on their life, that he is working in their circumstances, and therefore they are just confident and aware that this is, this is the person who is free from daily cares and worries. So our responsibilities are to count it all joy and to remain steadfast. Now, there is one caveat that I would like to include here in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12 is talking about a specific kind of trial, and that trial is the discipline of the Lord. It's when there is some sin in our life or something that God wants to work out, and he is, it's, it's discipline. It's, it's not punishment. It's, it's the word paideia, and paideia is the idea of child rearing. It is the idea of moving a child from, uh, from again, infancy to adulthood. And so, but, but in Hebrews chapter 12, there is one thing that I want to include here. It says in Hebrews 12, 11, it says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. To those who have been trained by it, implying that if we're not allowing ourselves to be trained by it, then it's not going to actually have its intended result. Now, that is definitely captured under the umbrella of remaining steadfast and counting it all joy. But if, if we're in a difficult circumstance, a trial, part of our prayer should be, Lord, is there something that you're trying to work out of me here? What is, you know, is there something that I'm doing that you want me to stop? Um... Because at that point, we shouldn't just grit our teeth and be like, I'm just going to remain steadfast. It's, well, well, you know, yeah, steadfastness is good, but that, but that we might have something that we need to repent of as well. So the three things are going to be to count it all joy, to remain steadfast, and to be willing to ask the Lord if there's something in particular he's focusing in on in the circumstance. And one just additional point of encouragement from this text before we start drawing some applications is in James 1.12, there is a um, duration placed on the length of the trial. It says, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, implying that the test will have an end. First uh, Peter 5 also talks about this uh, in a, another really popular passage where Peter says, 
Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So at the proper time he may exalt you. There's a time frame here. So what are the conclusions? The conclusions are going to be these. Um, the, like I said, the, there is the sequence here. Trials lead to testing. Testing leads to steadfastness. Steadfastness leads to being made perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And we also see in verse 12 that the end result is being blessed. And being blessed means being free from daily cares and worries. These things not being able to knock us off of our feet. That's definitely under the umbrella of being made perfect and complete, being made whole. But this is one of the points I wanted to draw out. Trials drive out fear. Trials drive out fear because trials drive us to our knees, drive us to seek the Lord more intently. And then we come to see Jesus is sufficient even in this. He is sufficient even in this. His grace is sufficient for me. His power is made perfect in weakness. So even in this circumstance that scares me that I tried to avoid, Jesus is enough. So trials drive out fear. They drive out fear. Another point I wanted to make is this. The trial will pass, but the results will last. The trial will pass, but the results will last. We just look at how these things have a limited duration. A limited duration. And remember, the Lord loves us. The Bible says he doesn't, you know, in, uh, in Lamentations 3, that he doesn't grieve the children of man from his heart. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he remembers our frame. He remembers that we're just dust. The Lord is, you know, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He's not just some cold, cruel, authoritarian father. No, he loves us. He loves us. I would, of course, remind you of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Yeah, they went through the fire, but they weren't alone in the fire, were they? No, the Lord was with them in the fire. And actually, this now that I brought them up, let me include something that somebody pointed out to me from there. You know, we think that nothing was burnt in the furnace for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's false. Something was burnt. They came out. They didn't smell like smoke. They didn't. I mean, their hat had not been singed. Their cloak was fine. All of that. But something was actually burnt up. So let me flip there right now. I didn't actually intend on on going here, but I, I just remembered this, and it's so good. Uh, the fiery furnace. The fiery furnace. Here we are, Daniel chapter three. So Nebuchadnezzar gets really mad, as we know, he because the the three Hebrews won't bow to the golden image that he uh, set up. So then he gets the fire. Um, superheated. He ordered some of his mighty men to. Um, to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the furnace. And so it says, these men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the fiery furnace. Um, And the fire was so hot that it killed the mighty men that threw them in there. Then Nebuchadnezzar, of course, looks in there. I'm in uh, Daniel 3.24. Listen to this detail. I'm just going to read 3.24 and following. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. The Nebuchadnezzar came near, and he, you know, the, the narrative continues. But look at that. We, we notice the detail 
that there's the fourth person walking around in them, but they were bound. When they were thrown into the furnace, they were tied up. And yet they were walking freely in the furnace. The only thing that the fire touched were things that bound them. The fire led to their freedom. I cannot take credit for that insight. It was shown by me or shown to me by somebody who's actually uh, connected to the ministry um, that I'm on staff with. But what a powerful image and what a truth. We're afraid of the fire of the trials, but, but no, 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 no. The fire is just going to burn away things that are actually hindering us. One of my favorite hymns actually has a, a fantastic verse talking about this very topic. Is how firm a foundation, and uh, it's the fifth verse, and it says this. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. Obviously, the Lord is speaking there. And how true, how true. We see that in these circumstances and in these verses and all of this. We, we, we see that here. We see it. So returning to James, I uh, want to draw just a couple more conclusions and hopefully some of these things are sitting and sticking with you. So counting it all joy, counting it all joy. Um, the opposite to joy is something that I have unfortunately been an expert in for many, many years. It's called whining. <laughs> joy and whining are totally opposed. Um, if I am complaining, then I am not counting it all joy. It's as simple as that. It's very helpful. Uh, here's, here's a text to support that. Philippians 2, 14 through the first part of 16 says, Do all things without grumbling and disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. But here is... Um, here is one of the main points, I think, of this passage. Since the testing results in us being made perfect and complete, fully equipped and mature, if I don't undergo that testing, then I won't be those things, will I? Here's my point. I can't be trusted until I've been tested. I can't be trusted until I've been tried. Now, let me, again, clarify something. Jesus taught us to pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Please don't misunderstand and think that I'm trying to teach some sort of uh, theology that's just um, just pain and, and suffering all the time. No, 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 no. I, just, I would refer back to the beginning of this entire episode to say, listen, James doesn't talk about the origin of trials. He just talks about the reality of them. And I am just responding to the reality of them right now. But I can't be trusted until I've been tested. I can't be trusted. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 11 in his introduction to, his, uh, to one of his letters to the, the believers in Corinth. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Now listen to this. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, 
but on God, who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Listen to what Paul said. He said, but these, these, this difficulty, it was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. We have to realize when we encounter trials, it is teaching us to rely not on ourselves, but on God. That is one of the biggest and most important lessons that we as believers have got to learn. We must learn how to rely on God. We must learn how to truly be poor in spirit and say, I have nothing and he must fill my hands. He must fill my hands. Um, another, another note about testing. Yeah, I think it's connected to the idea of being pure in heart, returning to the Beatitudes. I think it's the sixth Beatitude where Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Pure, pure is another one of those words that we equate with sinlessness, which it of course, you know, has the idea of, of sinlessness, but pure just means undefiled. If you have pure water, it's just water. That's it. It's not, it's unmixed. Pure just means unmixed. And, um, it it also has the idea of being single-minded as opposed to being double-minded. So pure, so pure in heart, what does that mean? It means a heart that is fully dedicated and focused on the Lord. It is wholly dedicated. And so then the fire of the trials will burn away the other stuff so that we won't be double-minded and have, you know, uh, kind of like to be impure in our pursuit of the Lord, but that will be purely devoted to him, rely only on him. And then what's the result? We will see God. God will be real to us in a new, fresh way. We'll see him at work all around us because our eyes won't be blinded by um, the being tossed to and fro of being double-minded. So I want to end very quickly here with a an excerpt from a book that I really, really like. And I would recommend to any of you listening to this. The book is called The Giant Killer. It was written in 1856, uh, which, I mean, you just, (laughs) listen, reading a book from the 1800s just makes you feel smart, okay? Now, the book was written for an audience that was 6 to 11 years old, so I don't know how I should, maybe it breaks even, you know, 1800s, childhood, I I don't know. But it's a phenomenal book. It's a phenomenal book. It's written by, the author's name is A-L-O-E. It's an acronym for A Lady of England, and it is part of the Lamp Lighter book series. So, it is called The Battle. The Battle. Wonderful book. It is a novel, and inside of the novel is an allegory. So, in this allegory, it is about a, uh, a champion. Um, I believe his name will be pronounced Fides. And Fides goes on a uh, quest where he slays five giants. He has this uh, indestructible immortal sword, which obviously represents the word of God. Um, He has his companion, Conscience, and he fights five giants. He fights, I believe, let's see here, sloth, selfishness, hate. um, I'm forgetting one. And then the final one is pride. Uh, Pride. And pride is the one that I want to focus on here. So pride... (laughs) 
it's, it's a very fascinating story. Like, I mean, I don't know even how much to include, but, but what happens is he meets another knight, but instead of a sword, this knight has this long, dark, twisted metal staff this long, dark, twisted metal staff. And they start talking and Fides befriends this guy and they're just kind of talking about their um, their journeys. But then this other knight starts getting strangely boastful and Fides gets more and more skeptical of this guy. So Fides jumps up and with the sword, he writes in the sand the words, I repent, I am grateful. And he said to the other knight, read this, read these words. And the other one couldn't because it was giant pride. Giant pride could not pronounce the words, I repent, I am grateful. So then they get in this epic battle. And then through this battle, um, Fides barely comes through victorious and slays giant pride. Then an old man emerges the old man's name is Experience. And Experience tells Fides, take that staff. Take that staff right there that was in the hand of pride. Um, it's called the will. It is called the will. And so then they take the will back to uh, Experience's house. And Experience is a blacksmith. He is a smith. He's, he, he has a forge and he works with metals. And so then now I'm going to begin quoting this conversation. And uh, Fides is speaking. Oh, experience, he said as he laid his hand on the will. How can this instrument, once used by pride, be ever an acceptable offering to my king? Of course, talking about the Lord. Experience took from a small casket a vial labeled submission, which contained a colorless fluid. He poured a few drops upon the dark, heavy metal, then rubbed the staff with a rough, hairy cloth, and wherever the liquid had touched, there was a spot of bright, glittering gold. This rough cloth is disciplined, said the old man. With patience, through its rubbing, thou shalt see all the value of the will when restored to its rightful owner. Yet can I not offer to my king that which is crooked and bent. It bears too evident tokens of having been in the service of pride. And as Fides spake, he tried and tried again with all his might to straighten the massive staff, but the tough metal resisted all his efforts. The will is crooked indeed, but it may be straightened, said Experience. We have other ways of working. My furnace of affliction is near. So saying, before Fides had time to reply, he plunged the staff into the red glowing fire. Give it back, exclaimed the knight with impatience. Any way, any way but this. No way but this, said the old man firmly, keeping back the hand that would have snatched it from the fire. See how the gold is brightening. See how the metal is softening in the furnace. Submit the will to what is needful to make it perfect, a precious offering, acceptable and pure. So saying, experience drew it from the furnace of affliction and laid it on the anvil of trial. He struck it with his heavy iron hammer, but was interrupted by Fides. No more! Thou wilt destroy it! No more! It is enough! Not yet, replied the old man, and struck it again. Stay thy hand, exclaimed Fides. It can bear no more. Yet a little patience, cried experience, and struck it again. Then the will was restored to Fides. Straight, pure, beautified. Oh, how unlike that staff, which had been so deadly in the grasp of pride. Phenomenal book. What insight. How clear of a picture. And James is talking about the very same thing here. And so I just want to leave you with that. I hope you're walking away feeling encouraged. I hope that you hear this as you've been listening. You've been looking at your own circumstances through this because chances are that you can probably identify something in your life to which what we've discussed today applies.
And so I hope that as a result of this, that you count it all joy and that you remain steadfast. A lot of times we find ourselves in the same position over and over again because we do everything but count it all joy and remain steadfast. And therefore we resist what the Lord is trying to do in our lives. So I pray sincerely that this has been a blessing to you. And thank you for spending time with me today. All right, God bless you.